This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. We were out for dinner on a Friday night. It was just, you know, the music's loud, it's packed. And we have our dinner and we're leaving. We did this all the time. This was what we did on a Friday or Saturday night. And I look up and there's bar stools. And I see the back of his head and his neck and I knew it was Peter and as soon as I identified him he so eerily it's like he knew my eyes were on him in that moment and he just slowly turned around in his bar stool and glared at me right into my eyes Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm here with Alexis Linkletter, and we're recording on Zoom right now, but I would like to let you know, Alexis, that I just got my apartment cleaned for the first time in way too long, and it wow. feels so good. See, I I have my apartment cleaned a lot because I am chaotic <laughs> at home. <laughs> You're called, what's your nickname? Splash Zone. Splash zone. Um, so I'm just chaotic and I'm never home. So I don't have time to clean. So that's what happens. You need somebody. I was like, dude, this is actually kind of embarrassing the amount of time that it took to uh, clean up all of the dust and dirt that has settled in the crevices of my apartment. So I'm feeling good. How are you feeling? I'm feeling fantastic. I'm ready to take take the day by storm, take this episode by storm. I know. It's a really, really good episode. This is part two two of our series with Surviving Peter Paul. So if you haven't listened to part one, you're going to be very confused. So go back and listen to part one, and then you can binge this afterwards. But before we get into it, I'm going to let you know what day it is today. What day is it today? It's really sad because today is Pluto demoted day. Pluto like the planet? Yes, it's the day that Pluto got demoted. To what? To not a planet. What is it, a chunk of ice? Pluto was a planet for 76 years, but now it's not. It got demoted. Pluto Demoted Day commemorates the day in 2006 when the International Astronomical Union demoted Pluto from planetary status and designated it as a dwarf planet. Well, I realize why I didn't know that. It's because I graduated high school uh, before then, so I don't... (laughs) I wouldn't have learned that anywhere else. And it was a planet when I was in school. No happenings. That makes me really sad. I feel like Pluto deserves to be a planet. Yeah, it's a little cutie. 
Hopefully get them back. There's some other days. There's It's like a National Waffle Day, Shooting Star Day. Go out and like try to find a shooting star. Very National Waffle Day. And your least favorite, National Peach Pie Day. Yeah, awful. Let's move awful. on. Awful. Awful. Yeah. All right, we well, got this. That is enough of that. So let's turn on the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. So last week, we introduced you to Jennifer, and holy cow, did she take us on a wild ride. And her journey revealed the obstacle she encountered as she tried to escape a dangerous, violent relationship with her ex-boyfriend, Peter Paul. Refusing to let Jennifer go and wanting to exert even more control, Peter tracked her cycles, which led to Jennifer becoming pregnant with his child. Unfortunately for him, this plan to control Jennifer by getting her pregnant backfired, And this pregnancy actually gave Jennifer the strength she needed to stand up to him once and for all. Peter tried to kill Jennifer and even dug a grave intended for her up in the hills of Los Angeles. He was convicted of kidnapping and attempted murder and handed 15-year prison sentence. And like we said at the end of last week's episode, that should have been the end of it. But the evil force that was Peter fucking Paul was quite a dedicated one. But for all the misery Peter caused... He was ultimately no match for that pesky little thing called karma. Hang on tight to your hats, friends, because this story is far from over and has more twists, turns, and triumphs on the horizon. So following Peter's conviction for Jennifer's kidnapping and attempted murder, Jennifer continued living in Los Angeles' west side as she prepared to become a mother. After all, Jennifer's due date was fast approaching and only months after she'd faced Peter in court. And while Peter would be blissfully absent from the remainder of Jennifer's pregnancy, somehow he still managed to linger in ways that Jennifer never expected. By this point, she had moved to a rent-controlled apartment in Santa Monica, and Peter, as cunning as he is, managed to find out about it. And since Peter was locked up, he sent the next best thing to do his dirty work. Peter knew about the apartment. His mom found out about the apartment and it was walking distance from where she was living. So she'd come over drunk and I'm going to get that baby. And you put my son in prison and just tormented me. Great. So now Peter's mom would take over the task of harassing Jennifer. And the day after Peter's mother confronted her at her new apartment, Jennifer actually went into labor and she wasn't going to let Peter's mom ruin the joy of this day for her though. She was thrilled to become a mom. And her son, who she'd named Nick, was truly the miracle she never knew she needed. After I gave birth, when they were wheeling me from the delivery room to the postpartum unit, Nick was getting his first little bath, and that's my son. His name's Nick. That's my son. He was so big, they had to, he was nine pounds, four and a half ounces, and they had to go up into storage to get a bassinet big enough for him. They were all, oh my God, he's, he's such a big baby, and red hair and big blue eyes and just my miracle, my big little miracle. Jennifer remembers being in the hospital following Nick's birth. And they wheel me by the nursery to see him getting his first bath. And Peter's mom was right there. And my legs were numb from the epidural. I tried to get up from the wheelchair and I just remember telling the nurses, she, that's, you, she can't, don't let her near my baby. You go, she needs to leave, get her out of here. And they just wheeled me along. Okay, what's going on? Because they didn't know. 
my mother was irate. Eventually they got her to leave, but then she would get drunk enough that she would show up at my little apartment and threaten me from time to time. This is honestly hell. What was it going to take for Jennifer to be rid of these people? She was now a new mom, and she wanted to enjoy this exciting newborn phase with her son. But Peter's threats continued to persist. If not by his mother, it was via threatening letters he sent from prison. Yeah, so apparently in the 90s, prisoners could somehow get away with sending threatening correspondence to their victims from behind bars. It's pretty deplorable. For years, I just didn't trust anyone because I thought, as long as Peter was alive, there were people. He had promised me he would send me letters from prison and messages and, you know, I'll still get you. And and I have people out there. I mean, he always promised all of that. So I didn't really trust anyone. In these letters, Peter learned how to speak in code and send these really subtle, inadvertent threats. But Jennifer could read between the lines. Peter wanted her to know that she still wasn't safe, even while he was behind bars. He did it in such a conniving way. They were subtle. Just know if you don't behave yourself. I know people out there. I have people out there. And, and you know, I just wicked little innuendo. He would refer to my son as his little prince. A lot of that or his little king. The letters kept coming, but Jennifer didn't let them hold her back. She continued through her career and she continued being amazing mom. And she slowly began the process of healing from the mental and physical trauma that she'd endured and lived through. Then somewhere along the way, Jennifer met an incredible guy who she'd eventually marry. And a new relationship meant that there would be questions about her past. I wouldn't tell him anything about Peter. He would ask me, who, who's, you know, your son's father? And I wouldn't tell, I wouldn't talk. It was my secret. It was my safe secret. I didn't want to, I don't know, I just wasn't ready to share. He piecemealed it all together. Like he knew the story. Everybody seemed to know the story because we were from the same part of town, you know. And then he was there for the nightmares. And I think that spoke volumes. He just taught me to be brave. And that's something I'll be grateful for forever. And by the time Jennifer's son, Nick, was a toddler, Jennifer and her partner had become their own little family, made more complete by his daughter from a past relationship. And by this point, the couple understood their shared intentions to make their relationship official, and they planned to eventually tie the knot. Jennifer was happy, and little by little, the fear that Peter could be lurking around every corner softened. However, she remained vigilant. She took every precaution, including alerting Nick's preschool of the entire situation involving his biological father, explaining that it was imperative that Nick was never released to anybody but her. And just as Jennifer's life took on that peaceful kind of mundane that she'd always longed for, she checked the mail one day. We were living in the West LA area and got a letter from the victims of violent crime saying he was going to be released on such and such a date. Even though he was in prison, I was always, always, always watching my back, our backs. So I got the letter that he was going to be released. And I don't remember the time frame. I want to say for all the offenses between what he did to me and then the drug trafficking, maybe five years. This man dug a grave for Jennifer and her baby and held a gun to her head. And for all of that, he served about five years. This whole thing is fucking disgusting. 
Yeah, it's horrible. And with this letter, obviously, the clock has started ticking for Jennifer. Peter was going to get out, and soon. And she knew exactly what would happen the moment he did. He would come for her and for Nick. But Jennifer was a different person than she was when she was with him. Now she was a badass mom. She was working as a nurse at UCLA. And she was part of this family unit with a strong man who loved her in her corner. Plus, this is just a warning letter alerting Jennifer to Peter's eventual release. She still had some months to mentally prepare and put the proper provisions into place before he got out. Or so she thought. Jennifer didn't let the news mess with her routine. And on a Friday night, she went to dinner with the fam at a local restaurant, as she often did. It was called Teasers. It was a, you know, restaurant and bar and club by night and family friends. It was just a fun spot. And we were out for dinner on a Friday night. It was just, you know, the music's loud. It's packed. And we have our dinner and we're leaving. We did this all the time. They paid their check and it was time to leave. We were leaving. We're up by the front door and we're talking to the manager who we were friendly with. And I, I look up and there's bar stools and I see the back of his head and his neck. And this is like a month or two before he was supposed to be released. And I knew it was Peter. And as soon as I identified him, he so eerily, it's like he knew my eyes were on him in that moment. And he just slowly turned around in his bar stool and glared at me right into my eyes. Not even, didn't even look at my son, Nick. He just was looking at me like, I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm back. Jennifer was paralyzed with fear. This man tried to kill her. And after he failed, he wrote from jail and continued to threaten her life. I didn't speak. I just picked Nick up, grabbed my daughter by her hand, and they were little, and started running through the restaurant to go out to the back door. And my ex-husband screamed above all the music and the people, Jen! And I just stopped. And I looked back and he said, he shook his head, no, don't run. Don't run. And I'm, I mean, it's just we're in the middle of this packed, busy restaurant, people having fun, eating, doing their thing. And it was like we were the only people there. I walked back and he whispered in my ear, he wants you to be afraid. We're going to walk out of here like a family. And we're going to walk to our car. No more running. And that's what we did. So Jennifer walked past Peter with her kids in her arms and her man by her side. But of course, I was looking over my shoulder the whole time. And the manager had said, Jen, what happened? You, you turned white as a ghost. You know, what happened? I couldn't even speak. I couldn't speak. So he got out of prison before the date on the letter from the victims of a violent crime. He got out early. And I didn't know. So yeah, there were questions. Like, why was Peter out months earlier than he was supposed to be? And beyond that, how the hell did he know where Jennifer would be? Even more importantly, what exactly was he planning? How did he know where we were? How did he know that? Like, how did he know where we would be? It was just so, I just, oh, was just so full of terror and fear. And, and 
It started all over again when he got out. My ex-husband had no respect for him, thought he was just punk, just ugh, disgusting. But that helped me in a sense because that's when I started learning to be brave. Jennifer went to bed that night, but she knew exactly what she needed to do in the morning. She had to triple check whatever safeguards that were available to her, including the restraining order. The next morning, I got up and I went to the Santa Monica Police Department to make sure the restraining orders for me and and Nick were in place. And I'm parallel parking my car. And who walks right in front of my car? Peter Paul. Okay, honestly, the idea, though, that he showed up at the police station in oh my God. The, the night before she saw him at a restaurant, like he's doing exactly what we talked about in part one, where he was literally following his mother, uh, following Jennifer's mom, I mean. And it's like, she, yeah. he's stalking her and he just got out of prison. Like he is unstoppable. Yeah. So after five years of relative calm, Peter Paul was back with a vengeance. In 24 hours, he'd shown up at two places where Jennifer was, which meant, as I said, stalking her. From there... A few very uneasy days passed. A couple days later, I take Nick to preschool, and there's a code. You have to punch in a code at the front door. And who pulls up? Just all casually and creepy, you know, just here I am watching me take my son into the preschool. My brain froze. I couldn't remember the code. I'm punching, you know, the the emergency, help, help, let us in, let us in, and he just what he just kept showing up. I mean, holy shit. How is any of this okay? It seems like it's straight out of a movie. Like this shit shouldn't happen in real life. And I think it's time for your mid-episode reminder about why you should never say things like why don't you leave or why couldn't you leave? And it's because for a lot of people, if you leave, you're going to get killed. This man went to prison for what he did, and he still won't let it go. Like, nothing is going to stop this guy. And this is why people don't just leave. Exactly. And Peter, like we said, is back. And Jennifer, at this point, is panicked. She has a family to protect now. And Jennifer wanted to implement every safeguard at her disposal. So, as we said, Jennifer and her partner already knew that they planned to get married. But they decided they were going to fast-track this process so that he could officially adopt Nick. And that would be another layer of protection for him. And obviously, the sooner, the better. He loved my son. And he wanted to be his father no matter what. So when Peter got out and started showing up all the time again, he said, well, let's do the adoption now. We agreed. Let's do it now. Fast forward a little bit. We do end up getting married six months, a year later. We just were already on that trajectory. And then Peter wanted visitation, not even custody. He just wanted visitation, which I was terrified. So we ended up having to go to children's court and the whole thing. Wow, this just keeps getting worse. Because he was out of prison, he was he had all his own set of rights. So they assigned him this fancy schmancy. I think she was right out of USC Law School, young lawyer, and she showed up and, and she was you know, all, you know, protecting Peter and his rights and he has rights and paternal rights. Thankfully, the judge could see that Peter was a fucking sociopath from a thousand miles away. The idea that he would actually even try to fight for visitation is terrifying. You know, just imagine, uh, no, the fucking audacity, dude. The judge said there's absolutely no way 
no way. Peter didn't even show up to the final hearing. He knew. And we moved from the west side out to the Agora Hills area. And we were pregnant with our third. At this point, Jennifer and her new husband were expecting another child together. And they decided to remove themselves from the situation completely. They were leaving Santa Monica and moved to Agora Hills. And if you're not familiar with this area, it's more than 30 miles away and about 40 minutes by car. So it's on all the way to the other side of the city. So once they moved, something kind of interesting happened. Peter kind of gave up. His efforts started to fizzle out. And you can kind of understand why. Peter kept trying to either take or ruin Jennifer's life. And he kept failing. She kept prevailing. So from Jennifer's perspective, the fear of his presence always loomed. But slowly that fear dulled as she heard from and heard about Peter less and less. Jennifer's new baby was born and life was quiet and normal, which truthfully, after being with a psychopath like Peter Paul, is really all Jennifer ever wanted. And then one day she got some news that hit her like a ton of bricks. Maybe a year, year and a half, two years later, Nick's little, he's playing in the peewee soccer league. And I'm at one of his practices. So I'm at this little park one night with the three kids. My newborn baby is in his little carrier seat. And I get a page, 911, 911, and I call a good friend of mine who also tried to help me through all this, never left me, one of the few. He said, I just saw on the news, there's a body of a man found murdered in Topanga Canyon by the name of Peter Paul. He said, you have to go home and watch the news. So I went home, turned on the news, and we're standing in the living room. And sure enough, Peter Paul murdered in Topanga Canyon. Could it be the Peter Paul, the same Peter Paul who had taunted, abused, and tried to kill Jennifer? And it turns out, yeah, the now 29-year-old Peter Paul had been murdered. Karma never loses an address. I heard that a few years ago. I think my mom told me that. And I just thought, that is so powerful and so true. Karma never loses an address. So what happened? Who killed him and why? You know the drill. In order to answer all of these questions and more, we got to go back. Okay, so we're going back to September of 1997. The top song was Honey by Mariah Carey and I Don't Want to Miss a Thing by Aerosmith. The top movies at the box office were Air Force One followed by Men in Black. Great movie. The setting is Topanga Canyon, California. And if you're not familiar, it's located in the Santa Monica Mountains. And the Topanga Canyon area and community is known as sort of a bohemian enclave, attracting artists, musicians, filmmakers, creatives, kind of hippie vibes. Granola, crystals, energy healing, sound baths, you can imagine it. But even more specifically, we're going to the 2400 block of Topanga Canyon Boulevard. So to describe this property, it's a piece of land with three separate homes on it, and at least one of which was a rental home. So this home had been rented out to a young couple, and the woman, who is named Timmy Vaughn, alerted the landlord that she and her boyfriend would be moving out rather abruptly. So this landlord eventually wanted to go check the property out prior to renting it to someone new. So when said landlord arrived to inspect this place, they noted that the house had been partially cleared out. 
and they kind of took a stroll around the house, the perimeter, the exterior, to see just the condition of everything. And on that stroll, the landlord noticed something kind of weird. The landlord, who lived in Arizona or New Mexico or somewhere, and he flew in like a month later to get the place up to snuff and re-rent it. And as soon as he stepped onto the property, he smelt something foul. The landlord somehow knew that this smell wasn't just an ordinary smell. So he called the police. First officer shows up, can't find anything. He said, there must be a dead animal down in the canyon because the house was right up, you know, it's Topang Canyon. And and the and the property owner's like, no, no, no. I used to live here. I can't can't be no, it's this is different. So he wouldn't leave. The the cop left, the first cop left, he called another one, called them, said, I want another, I need help. And they're walking around and finally this second officer sees something sticking up out of the ground under the log pile. Apparently what was sticking up out of the log pile was a human foot. So an investigation began swiftly. The body was recovered and the landlord was questioned about his former tenants. And it didn't take long for the puzzle pieces to come together. This body was the male tenant who rented the property with his girlfriend, Timmy Vaughn. However, it didn't take long for the police to figure out that, quote, Timmy Vaughn was not a real name. In fact, both of the names on the lease had been aliases. So who was this guy? And who was this gal? So here's what the police knew. So the man had been in this, you know, makeshift grave for a week or two before they had been discovered. They knew he was white and they knew he was around 30 years old. And from the autopsy, the police learned that he'd been shot once behind the right ear and toxicology tests were also run and conducted. And those tests revealed that he had Valium in his system. Could it be related to the murder or could it be his own prescription? At this point, they don't know. But another thing they knew is that they really wanted to speak to this man's girlfriend. And she was nowhere to be found, totally in the wind, and they had no idea what her real name was. Then it's all over the news and all the helicopters. And my ex-husband and I are standing in the living room and watching his body being taken, you know, put in the corner van and the whole thing. It didn't take long for law enforcement to uncover the real identity of this mystery couple. It turns out Timmy Vaughn was a real person. And the real Timmy came forward and told the police the real name of the woman that they were looking for. It was 32-year-old Christina Marie White, who was a friend of hers. And the real identity of the man who had been killed, that was Peter Paul. He said, can't blame her, no, and I'm grateful because she literally saved us. I mean, you know, I mean, I stopped watching my back after I saw that on the news. I, I felt like I could breathe again. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. 
Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, They'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. So here's what we know. Christina and Peter were in a romantic relationship and had met and moved in together four months later. They would occupy various rental properties under fake names and pay for them in cash. And this couple kept a low profile and tried to fly under the radar. And they had a couple of really good reasons to do so. Let's start with Christina. So she'd been arrested for embezzling $800,000 from a Beverly Hills printing company and a Malibu businessman. And apparently she stole money by making checks out to herself and to her boyfriends. And that included Peter. And she spent a lot of this money traveling to places like Hawaii, London, and Amsterdam. And she also remodeled at least one house, including a $30,000 payment on tile and also to put a bar into a Malibu apartment. And on one occasion, she spent nearly $11,000 renting a limo to shuttle her friends to a party at her house. So honestly, embezzling's wrong. You shouldn't steal. But like, if you're going to spend it on anything, (laughs) these seem like the things to do. (laughs) Yeah. So Christina had been arrested on these embezzlement charges, but then she was released pending her arraignment. And it was at that point that she disappeared. She was gone in the wind. Nobody could find her. And this landed her on the list of Los Angeles Police Department's most wanted fugitives. That's probably when she started using these fake names in order to evade capture. 
But wait, there is more. A lot more. A lot more. When the police processed the Topanga Canyon crime scene after discovering Peter's body, they also discovered something else. The detectives found an indoor marijuana grow operation inside the home. Right. And this just keeps getting bigger and bigger because evidence found inside of this Topanga Canyon home, it led them to another property in Calabasas. And there they found 600 more marijuana plants. And remember, this is the 90s. Weed's not legal. So this is a big operation and explains why Peter and Christina would be living under aliases, especially since Christina was already wanted by the law for embezzlement charges. So this also answers a question as to what they were doing in their spare time and how they were funding their lifestyle. But it doesn't tell us who murdered him or why. But I think we know where this is going, right? Because, you know, leopards don't change their spots. Zebras don't change their stripes. People don't change. And as soon as Jennifer heard that Peter Paul's body had been found, she knew exactly what had happened right away. Beat up on the wrong woman. Clearly, he was abusive towards her and apparently some of her friends. I'd heard that he broke one of her friend's legs, but the twist of fate is what's shocking. So he was going to shoot me and bury me. But she drugged him because I said he was an aspiring boxer back in the beginning, right? So he would get home from training. She drugged his smoothie And then she shot him. And then she had day workers dig a hole in their yard under the log pile where they kept the logs. And somehow she got him out there to the grave that was dug, but wrapped in a tarp. And then she poured lye, which is powdered acid, over the tarp and then covered him up with the dirt and then restacked the logs and Apparently, she had a party and gave his stuff away. And I don't know if any of that's true, but I've heard it a few times. And and then she went into hiding. She lost weight, changed her hair color, and she was a wanted woman. Jennifer's right. The police investigation revealed that Christina allegedly left Peter's body in their bed while a work crew she hired dug the hole for him to be buried in. Several days later, she rehired one of the same men to move most of this marijuana operation all the way to Calabasas. And even though Christina was still missing, the murder case against her was mounting. And when I was researching this, I had to read this like 30 times to make sure I was reading this right. So apparently, there was this incredible sequence of events where an off-duty police officer who was working as a security guard on a movie set nearby somehow by happenstance, recorded part of a cell phone conversation through a police scanner. Apparently, it was a conversation from Christina's cell phone that she was having with a friend. And during this call, she confessed to killing Peter Paul. That seems like the most suspect explanation for how they got this recorded call I've ever yeah, heard. That's it so seems bizarre. almost like they covered up for illegally tapping her phone, but that's what the news reported. <laughs> it seems like a strange explanation, but they got this recorded call somehow, allegedly through this police scanner. So either way, Christina's on the run and it's becoming clear that Christina had in fact done this, but something else was becoming clear through this investigation as well. So Every single person close to Christina, who the police had spoken to, corroborated and confirmed that Peter was inflicting horrible physical abuse upon Christina, that he threatened to kill her on more than one occasion, that he'd almost killed her on several occasions, and that he had threatened her family 
the same way Jennifer's mom was stalked and harassed. So we're seeing very similar things in Christina and Peter's relationship as we observed in Jennifer and Peter's. So now the police needed to find her. They issued this bulletin telling the public that she had cut her hair, dyed it black, and dropped 35 pounds from a 155-pound frame, so she was very, very thin. She could be driving her late-model Toyota 4Runner and was considered armed and dangerous, and they reported that she could have fled to Las Vegas. The police were ultimately able to track her to her sister's house in Palmdale, California, by triangulating her calls to her friends. Christina Marie White was arrested for Peter's murder on October 22nd, 1998, and held on $540,000 bail. Right. And by the time she'd been arrested, Christina had been on the run for 10 months. Once she was in custody, she denied having any involvement. And she said that someone in the drug world must have been the one to kill Peter. Christina was facing serious charges, to which she pleaded not guilty. And by the time Christina was slated to go to trial, her defense had a clear strategy. It was obvious, based on all we know about Peter Paul, that Christina was suffering from battered women's syndrome. And we're going to give you a quick little summary of the term. So battered women's syndrome is a pattern of signs and symptoms displayed by a woman who has suffered persistent intimate partner violence. The condition is the basis for the battered women's legal defense that has been used in cases of physically and psychologically abused women who have killed their male partners. And based on all of this abuse that Peter had subjected his partners to, this seems pretty legitimate to us. Right. So the trial would be eye-opening and a lot would be revealed. Like the fact that by the time Peter's body was found, Christina had told a lot of friends about the killing. It wasn't something she was trying to hide, but her friends that she talked to, they all kind of thought what she did was okay. And I took that as a direct quote from the paper. Uh, That's what police were saying. Like, yeah, her friends thought this is okay. And in fact, many of them tried to protect her while she was on the run. So the question is why? Well, we know why. Because they'd witnessed Peter's psychotic behavior and treatment of her. They'd seen him abuse Christina the exact way he'd abused Jennifer. And he'd threatened to kill her. He'd beaten her. He threatened her family. And the prosecutor in this case even knew that. Even in her opening statement, she said, you're not going to like this victim. He had episodes of violence toward this defendant, but she was not suffering from battered women's syndrome. Christina would testify in her own defense and claim that she had to kill Peter or he was going to kill her. Christina was terrified of Peter because he beat her daily during fits of steroid-induced rage. And remember, he was a boxer and a bodybuilder, so this guy was strong and dangerous. Dude, a punch to the face could kill you if you're a boxer. Oh my God, yeah. So Christina said that she shot Peter after they struggled over the gun that he had threatened to use to kill her and her family if she tried to leave him or if she went to the police. So Christina was saving her own life when she shot him. So this all seems really cut and dry. Look at this guy's history. And for the love of God, he'd already been convicted of the attempted murder of his former girlfriend. And it makes us wonder why the state so vigilantly was trying to paint Peter Paul as an innocent victim. And you know what? We have an idea. So remember, this was only three years earlier in 95 when OJ had been acquitted for murdering his estranged wife, Nicole Brown. Nicole had begged for help over and over. In fact, in court, they played 911 calls where Nicole can be heard begging through tears for police to get there quickly before he beats the shit out of me. Nicole's murder and OJ's subsequent acquittal sent a message to women all across the United States. 
That message was amplified when Peter served a measly five years in jail for digging a grave and trying to kill Jennifer. And Christina's prosecution and the narrative set forth by the state further echoed that same fucking message that not only can men beat, abuse, and threaten to kill women, but if women save themselves from being murdered, they should go to jail. I referred to the OJ killing Nicole because that's when people really started paying attention to the dynamics because how many times did she call for help, ask for help, reach out for help? But it wasn't until she was murdered that people started paying attention. The moment I got away, when I, that whole thing that happened up in the Palisades was literally about a year before he killed Nicole. And no one was listening. No one would help. The prosecution even acknowledged the abuse Christina had suffered, and they weren't trying to deny it at all. But what the prosecution claimed was that Christina actually killed Peter out of greed rather than fear of her life. And the greed apparently was connected to this marijuana grow operation that they had. And as far as Christina's defense, there were witnesses who corroborated the extent of the abuse, but in the end, none of it mattered. Christina Marie White was found guilty of second-degree murder. She was 33 years old when she was sentenced to 15 years to life and given an additional 25 years to life for a special circumstance of using a gun. So that's a combined 40 years to life. She served more time than he did for what he did to me. And I had a couple of friends that wanted me to go and shake her hand and thank her when she was finally caught, but I didn't feel right about it. And she served quite some time. Christina Marie White went to jail to serve all that time for killing the man who was going to kill her. It's so fucking ironic and it doesn't seem fair and it's not fair at all. What is her option? Like, that's the thing. It's like, oh, it's I die or I go to jail. (laughs) And you're not going to take into account the fact that this man has already gone to jail for trying to kill his last girlfriend. Like, it's blowing my mind. It's ass backwards and it's so fucked up. But regardless, Jennifer never had to worry about Peter again, and neither did any woman in the future because you know he would fucking do it again. Absolutely. Jennifer did think about Christina a lot as life for her moved on. So Jennifer probably, in this process of healing, took steps forward and took steps back over the years because moving on from something like this is not a straight line. We know that Jennifer had a fantastic career as a nurse and built an incredible family. It's worth knowing that she and her ex-husband split around the year 2000, and this is the man that got her through this entire ordeal with Peter. And during our conversation, she spoke very highly and fondly of him as the father of her children and thanked him for helping her get through the most trying times of her life and also helping her to learn how to be brave. And it was right around the time that Jennifer split from her husband that something else happened. Nick wanted to know about his biological father. I knew I would tell my son the truth. At some point, he actually came to me one night shortly after my ex-husband and I split up, and he confronted me. It was 2000, so he was uh, he was six, going on seven. And he said, Mom, I want you to tell me who my real dad is because I know it's not dad because I don't look like him and he's in my brother and my sister's baby pictures, but he's not in mine. So that's when that whole thing started. But I I told him the truth. I just didn't tell him all the gory details until he got older and kept asking more questions and, you know. But he is... I'm so 
proud to say that he's such a well-adjusted, amazing 29-year-old man today. And I'm going to cry because he's my miracle. It's crazy, but Nick is almost 29. And that's all because Jennifer had the strength to get out of a seemingly impossible situation. But to be honest, like I choke up thinking about this because no women should have to fight this hard and so hard to survive an abusive relationship, which means the systems in place, if we can even call them systems, are failing miserably. This story is unreal. And if it doesn't outrage you, then you're asleep. I want my story to help women, but I also can't expect them to go through what I went through. You know, I took a 50-50 chance. We were either going to make it or we weren't. It took me going through that to get the help I needed, and it shouldn't have to come to that. But unfortunately, so many of the podcasts you've done, the women don't survive. It needs to stop. That's the only reason I'm doing this. I don't regret my past because it defined me. And it also, it shed a light on domestic violence. We need to do more. And I don't know what all those answers are yet, but I want to make a difference. And I hope my story does. I realize I'm one of the lucky ones. I've realized it every day for the last 30 years, every single day. But we need to keep at it, you know, it's a real epidemic. It really is. I sort of feel like I know you and, and Jack and your podcast. I, I told you, you know, you, you gave me the courage. I trusted you. I, I knew somehow you would help me tell my story. As far as Christina Marie White, I did find public records confirming that she is in fact out of prison. I'm a pretty good researcher and I could not confirm exactly how much time that she spent in prison. But really, how many years would have been fair? How many years should she get for killing a man who was going to kill her? I don't know, but I do know that in this instance, the criminal justice system failed. Instead of prosecuting Peter appropriately the first time for what he did to Jennifer, digging a grave and trying to kill her, he got a slap on the wrist. So we let him try to kill another woman, and then we sent her to prison for it. A huge, huge thank you to Jennifer for being our first degree guest for the past two weeks. We really thank you for your vulnerability and your strength. And we really just look up to you for everything that you've done in your life. If you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the firstdegreepodcast.com. No story is too small or too insignificant. Follow us on Instagram. You can join our Facebook group and make sure to subscribe to our Patreon for a lot of awesome bonus content and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Today's episode was written and researched by me. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree. Thanks to our lovely, lovely producer, Caitlin Cleveland. Sources for this episode include court documents in the LA Times. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. 
Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 